0: He is Sir Charles, Chuck, the round mound of rebound. Charles Barkley has become such a dominant media presence that some might forget what a dominant presence he was on the hardwood. An 11-time All-Star, he scored almost 24,000 points, grabbed thousand rebounds, and dished out 4,200 assists. He was the NBA's MVP in 1993, a member of the 1992 and 1996 Olympic Dream teams, and of course, he was one of the most beloved players ever to don a Sixers uniform. But this man, Charles Wade Barkley, from tiny Leeds, Alabama, has become even more popular since he played his final game in the year 2000. His presence on Inside the NBA on TNT with Shaquille O'Neal, Kenny Smith, and Ernie Johnson has revealed his unique talent as a broadcaster, hysterically funny, honest to a fault, and leaving the audience anxiously awaiting what he is going to say next. And his commercial credits from Right Guard in 1994 to Capital One now has made Charles perhaps the most visible pitchman on television. And as he told me, the way to sell a product is to make people laugh. But Charles Barkley is a serious man, and most of our conversation was all about that. So in two parts, here is Charles Barkley. I would guess like you've never heard him before. How you doing? I'm doing really good. How are Thank you for having me. This is pretty cool. Thank you for being here. You, you uh, were recently 60 in, yeah. fe- in February? It's uh, weird. So, so you're. Uh, it's the beginning of a new decade for you. You're, I guess, playing on the back nine and and in the third quarter. Yeah, <laughs> what, I've been using. What that, is life I, like for I, Charles? I've Sparkle? been
1: using that analogy. I, I'm <laughs> on the back nine. I hope I'm on like the tenth, eleventh hole. But you know what? It's been a great run. I always tell people, you not know, trying to be morbid or anything. All you want is a good number. It's only sad when young people die. If you haven't did anything about 40 or 50, you wasted your life anyway. So I look at everything from this point on as gravy, and I tell you, man, it is, out of all the successes I've had in my life, little Henry and little Charlie, just being with them, and I think seeing my daughter become a mom, being a grandpa is the greatest thing ever happened to me by far. It is the coolest thing ever. But... 60, you know, it's crazy. I got to Philadelphia in 1985, and it's been an amazing 40 years. I mean, it's crazy what is you know, cause when I got here in 84, 85, I had, you, you know, nobody knows how the career is gonna go. This is true. And you said like, man, this has been an incredible journey. I mean, I've exceeded all my expectations by far. It's just crazy.
0: You mentioned Christiana. Yes. Uh, I read how Ilya Hoffman, her husband, yes. caught you on your way out the door uh, and to catch a plane to ask your permission to ask your daughter for her hand in marriage. What was that like?
1: I started, I, I, I didn't tell him this, but I kind of, my heart sank. I, I felt almost started crying because... Uh, I never, I'd never done that personally before. I've heard about it before, and when he did it, I was like, because the thing that was funny about it, I was actually trying to work. I was, uh, they came to visit for Christmas, and I was taking notes on basketball games in my movie theater. And he said, "You mind if I watch basketball with you?" I says, "And I hate to be interrupted when I'm taking notes." <laughs> So he's sitting there. He said, like, "Can I ask you a question?" I said, "Sure." He says, Ab- "About about." Uh, I said, "Excuse me." He says, "What do you think?" I said, "Whoa, yeah, of course, of course." But it was really one of the cooler moments of my life, and he, you know, him and his family—they're so uh, amazing people, and every father, and especially she's my only child. So you want her to be happy, and so I was. I was thrilled. It was one of the coolest moments of my life.
0: One can only imagine. I have a, a grandson, Henry.
1: Yeah. Oh my so, goodness.
0: <laughs> he's uh, just two plus. Yeah. So, my only one, but uh, I haven't met too many or heard of too many two-year-olds named Henry. So.
1: So it's interesting. Um, so I guess in the Jewish religion, you can't name people. After people who are alive. Who
0: are living. Mm-hmm.
1: So my daughter was came to me in the beginning. She said, Dad, I just want you to know that I really wanted to name Henry after you, but because of the Jewish. I said, Christiana, this is your time. Your dad had his time. And I said, you don't have to name a kid after me. I'm just so proud of you having kids and blah, blah, blah. But then she had the little girl. And she says, we're going to name him Charlie after you, which really, you know, you talk I told you, uh, my heart sank with joy. And so I got little Henry, who's got the best hair in the world. And I got little Charlie. And uh, man, it is so much fun. Like I said, I think probably the most important thing is to seeing my daughter become a mom. Um, and man, uh, it's. I see how much work she's got going on right now to have two little ones,
0: and she is have she's she's got her hands full right now. So you have become um, a beloved broadcaster in large part because of your twenty plus years on inside uh, on inside inside yes. the NBA. Um, more recently, not that you haven't had experience with commercials for a long mm-hmm. time, because you have, but. I think the Capital One campaign with Samuel L. Jackson and Spike Lee and Jennifer Garner has introduced you to a whole new audience of not necessarily uh, sports lovers, but non-sports lovers. Um, You've almost become, uh, forgive me, something of an American cultural (laughs) phenomenon. (laughs) Well, I got to give Sam Jackson
1: the credit for that. You know, in in my dealing with commercials, Mm -hmm. I've only met two people who I thought were geniuses. There's a, a uh, Sam, uh, is just, we'll be shooting a spot. He's like, yeah, that doesn't work like that. Uh, and I said, it, it's, and, it's, uh, and Spike is the director and in it. And he's like, Spike, that doesn't work like that. I think we've gone on close to 10 years now. Mm-hmm. And when you work with somebody who know what they're doing, it changes the whole dynamic. Because I always, I always said, "Hey, is y'all commercial? Tell me what y'all want." But Sam says, "Yeah, but a lot of time those people are really smart, but they don't have common sense." He says, "Chuck, our job—we're trying to sell a product, but the best way to sell a product is to make somebody laugh. That's what you really want to do." And he uh, working with him has really changed me. When I go do other commercials, I say, hey, that's interesting, but let's try it like this. Now, if you want to do it the way you had it designed, that's fine. But I'm going to tell you,
0: I want people to look at my commercials and laugh. That's what I really want them to do. And, and they do, obviously. Uh, I'm interested how you feel having been introduced into a new genre of that is not in the context of sports. Uh, you are now Charles Barkley yeah. not the basketball player yeah. only not the sports caster or sports analyst only mm-hmm. you're Charles Barkley who yeah. who you know is this um, extraordinarily visible person yeah. who is almost undefinable
1: well you know i just they just had a list of the 10 most trusted sports casters on television and it ranked me number one, and I remember answering the question. I said, that was really one of the coolest things because I never want to deceive the public. I don't have a hidden agenda. And you know, we're in a really screwed up business nowadays. Guys are just trying to get clicks. They'll say anything. Uh, they just want people to watch or click. I says no, I I, I think television is such a powerful thing. That doesn't mean you're right all the time, but you can never have a hidden agenda. And that's the number one thing I said to myself, Chuck, tell the truth, even if you're wrong or people going to disagree with you. Because I never really want to disappoint the public to be honest with you. Because people believe what we say, and you know this, that's why people love you. Like, you've been given news, people trusted you all these years, they're like, I know he doesn't have a hidden agenda, He's trying to do the best possible thing when he gets on television every day. Nobody can have the longevity and success you had unless people like you and trust you. That's why you've always been successful. Now, I try to take that to the sports aspect of it. Like, you know what, Chuck, do not have a hidden agenda. Because what really bothers me about a lot of sportscasters, you can tell guys they really, really like guys they really, really hate. I don't think that's fair. Uh, I don't think that's fair at all. I think you have to be fair because Mike Wilbur, one of my mentors, says he says, "Man, this television thing is amazing." He says, "I was at the Washington Post for thirty years. Nobody knew who I was. That's I go, right. on, yeah. I, I go on TV for two years, and I can't go to dinner." He says, "I said, Mike, television is the most powerful, powerful vision thing in the world, and that's why I take it serious when I'm on television."
0: And you're about to expand your television. Uh, activities you're going to do a show for CNN with Gail King.
1: Yeah, you know, I'm concerned.
0: It's, uh, it's going to be a
1: strict news show. It's going to be a strict news show. But it, it, like I'm not. First, the first thing we're not going to do. We're not going to be political. We're not going to be a Republican. We're not going to be a Democrat. We're not going to be conservative. We're not going to be a liberal. I think one reason this country is so screwed up right now, these politicians have ruined our country.
0: I want to ask you about that.
1: These these politicians have flat out ruined our country. I mean, you look at this thing now. You got uh, President Trump, you got Hunter Biden. I'm like, well, they both seem like they're wrong to me. And it and but the the parties go along with just the party. I'm like, well, well, if two people do the wrong thing. You can't have you can't make it political. And it really really bothers me. So I met with Gail. And we met with the big bosses, and they said, October the 1st, we will get together again. I'm doing absolute nothing but playing golf every day. And I says, I'll come to New York when you get back from vacation. And I said, Gil, if you want to do the show, we'll do the show. This started for me, I think, okay, I got here 84, 85. I think my third year in the NBA, I started becoming a star. And I said, I, I went to... Uh, I was saying a couple things, and I was getting criticized. So I went to Dr. J, and I said, Doc, I really want everybody to like me. How do I handle this press stuff? He says, well, first of all, you you, you can't make everybody like you. It doesn't work like that. He said, you can say anything you want to in the world, and half the people are going to like it, and half the people are going to dislike it. He said, so you can't play volleyball with the press, trying to make, I'm going to make this guy happy, this person happy. He says, now there's another way. Now, you can be successful doing it, but it's tough. He says, just be a straight shooter and always be honest. I said, what? He says, now, you think volleyball is hard. Try being a straight shooter. And actually, my mentor, Dick Ebersaw. I think my last two years in the NBA, he came to me and he said, Charles, what do you think about television? I said, I don't know what I'm going to do, Mr. Episol Because at that time, they weren't hired a lot of jocks, to be honest with you. He says, I think you're going to be great on television. I said, what? He says, I think you'll be great. Now, he said, you're always going to be in trouble. I said, I said Mr. Episol what does that mean? He says, Chuck, when people say they want honesty, they really don't want it. They want their honesty. He says, People want you – fans want two things. Tell me my team is great and my favorite player is great. <laughs> and if you don't say that, they don't they're like gonna, it. They're, they're going gonna, to they're gonna, gonna hate you anyway. They're going to hate you. <laughs> no matter what you and, say. Uh, but when Dr. J gave me that advice, I said, I can handle – because I can't be doing this volleyball thing trying to please everybody because it doesn't work. And it's exhausting. Oh, it's exhausting. Because first of all, you have to remember everything, every lie you
0: everything told. Everything you said. Yes. Right. And to whom you said it. Yes.
1: You know what's so crazy? You know, I played with some of the greatest players who ever played the game. Moses, Dr. J, Maurice Cheeks, Andrew Toney, Bobby Jones. I vividly remember. We were up here at St. Joe's Clubhouse, uh, locker room up the street. I remember when the first time an NBA play, player made a million dollars. We were walking around high-fiving each other. We could not believe. I think the deal was Matty Johnson signed for $25 million for 25 years. That's the first time an NBA player made a million dollars, and I'm gonna go. We're going around, doctor, doc, everybody's high fiving, and now you look at now the average salary is
0: like ten million dollars. year. bless those guys. Uh, but so man. you say, bless those guys, and I agree. I I don't begrudge anybody the opportunity to yeah. make as much money as they can. Yeah. Ticket prices to go to watch a basketball game Unfair. have become ridiculous. Um, uh, so expensive mm-hmm. that. Very few people can now go to, to the Wells Fargo Center or yeah. anywhere else in the league to watch a game. Um, it, it, it is a an arena of 20,000 mm-hmm. wealthy people. That's now, all it is that, now. That doesn't make a lot of sense to it
1: me. It doesn't. It's really, un- it's really unfair. And, it, and let's be honest, they really don't need the money. They're just gouging the fans.
0: Well, they need the money to pay these salaries.
1: No, no they don't. No, they don't. Let me tell you something. We at TNT and ESPN mm-hmm. – mm-hmm both pay $2.5 billion a year. Mm -hmm. And the Sixers probably got a local TV deal also. Right. So that deal is getting ready to come up for for auction. It's going to start at $4 billion a year. And we already know, like TNT is nervous, ESPN is nervous, because Apple and Amazon have already said, we're coming. Uh, The next two years are going to be very interesting for the NBA. Uh, But the point I was making was the the TV uh sa- the TV contract paid the salaries the thing that's scary we're going to have guys making 70 80 million dollars going forward when we do the new, new TV deal which is crazy
0: you said that today's nba player um is spoiled yes not all of them but I think you were generalizing. Today's NBA players are spoiled and maybe um, less able to take criticism. You've talked about 100% on the you, criticism. You talked about Kevin Durant and yes. you and Kevin have had, you know, some, some yes. difficult moments. Um, what, why do you think today's NBA player is is as soft emotionally or mentally as as you th- say they are?
1: Cuz I think that they start getting their ass kissed a lot younger. Like, they start with this AAU crap, which I hate. And so now coaches have to be nice to them all the time in college because they're only going to be there for six months. So I think that's the biggest problem. And now, like, I remember, you know, I was telling you earlier about Dr. J. I remember when I first started getting criticized when I was coming a star. He said, hey, young fella, sit down and let me ask you a question. He says, it's a criticism fair. I said, what? He, I said, I, I, and I stuttered. I said, what do you mean? He says, you can't overreact to criticism. Sometimes criticisms are fair. These guys today never look at a criticism as it's fair. They're like, he criticized me. I got to go to social media and take a whack at him. Sometimes criticisms are fair. And when Dr. J said that to me, I said, you know what? Okay, okay, I can't overreact to a criticism. Now, if it's unfair, you can react. But I can. I feel pretty good about what I've said about people. First of all, it's never personal. It's never personal. I always stick to all my criticism. It's, it's going to be 100% on you as a basketball player. I'll never comment on people's personal life. I don't care, I don't ever comment on their nightlife. But if I criticize a guy, it's something that happened on a basketball court.
0: Interesting. Nevertheless, a guy like Kevin Durant, who is truly one of the great player. greatest players uh, in decades, yes, uh, says I will never respect any words that come from Charles Barkley's mouth. You obviously got to him.
1: Well, listen, what I said was and I stick by when he joined the Golden State Warriors, I don't. That was unfair. And before, and I said, and, and I haven't. First, I haven't been the only one who said it. I said the older guys have said it. They're like he gonna have to win the championship. Without the Golden State Warriors to get the respect that he deserves. And listen, we said the same thing about LeBron. LeBron didn't go crazy. LeBron says those guys are right. When he joined the Miami Heat and they won those championships, we're like, no, 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 that's not fair. I mean, Bird and Magic can't go play together. Bird and Michael Jordan can't go play together. What sports are are competition. And he can get mad and say that, but like I say, yo, man, if you want the old guys, not these little teeny boppers today who's going to kiss <laughs> up to you, the old guys are going to be like, yo, man, what you did with the Warriors, that wasn't fair. And I said, you're going to have to win the championship away from the Warriors. And I stick by that. And he got
0: pissed off. Yeah, but that doesn't bother me. Off. Hey,
1: listen, you, you, <laughs> that's the one thing you can never do as a television person if you're going to criticize guys, if they come for you, you can't be all you don't sensitive. You do walk it back. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. All right, let's talk about some things in, in Charles Barkley's life prior to now. Um, so is it true that <laughs> – you're smiling so much. Yeah. Is it true that in 1984, uh, when it looked like the Sixers might draft you, you went on a crash diet in reverse, gained eleven pounds, so that the Sixers wouldn't draft you because you didn't want their seventy-five thousand bucks, which was all they could pay you at the time.
1: Yeah, hundred percent true. So, <laughs> so I come, so I played close to three hundred pounds in college. I think when I came to Philadelphia, I weighed probably two ninety four, two ninety two somewhere there. So, and it was like a month before the draft. And I came up and met with the sickers and Harold Cat says, you know, everybody's concerned about your weight. We're concerned. You got a month to go. We need you to lose about seven, eight pounds. Come back here at 285. And I'm like, okay. So I went. I moved down to Texas for the summer, played basketball. I was probably around two eighty-five, 83, somewhere in there. And then my agent, like two days before the draft, he says, "Now you do know the Sixers, because you know the NBA has a hard salary. Had a had a hard salary cap back then." He says, "They can only give you seventy-five thousand dollars." I said, "Well, I didn't leave college for seventy-five thousand uh, dollars." He says, "Well, what do you want to do?" I said, I, "What? What can I do?" He said, "Well." The Sixers had said we got to stop back at there and weigh you. So I went on a 48 hour eating spree. I think we went to Denny's in the morning. We went to McDonald's in the afternoon. Then went to the biggest steakhouse in Texas two nights in a row. When I come back up to Philadelphia, I'm like two ninety nine. And Harold Kess called me MF, lazy, fat. And i and I'm trying to try not to laugh, to be honest with you. And he calls me every name in the book, and we get on the train and go up to New York. And I got to tell you something. You go back and look at my face on that tape. And when they said, with the fifth pick in the draft, a Philadelphia 76ers select, Charles Barkley, Auburn University, my heart sunk. Now, the Sixers traded two players. Franklin Edwards, I forget the other guy's name, and my first contract was four years, $2 million. So you worked it out. And we worked it out. But, man, I was like, when they said Charles Barkley seventy sixes, my heart sank.
0: 1984, the Olympic trials. Yeah. Um, and you tried out. You were a transcendent star at Auburn University, but a certain coach from Indiana yeah. uh, gave you a tough time. Tell me about Charles Wade Barkley and Robert Montgomery – uh, Knight. Bobby Knight is one of the greatest
1: coaches of all time. I admire him because he graduates as players. But what he did to me at the Olympics trials wasn't fair, and he was an ass. Uh, I I deserve to make the team easily. Uh, and I'll tell you this funny story. So John Thompson was one of the assistant coaches on that team. So after I got cut, and listen, i tell you what's funny. This is the, guy, the four guys. I actually was playing. I played so good. He just couldn't cut me early. So I remember going to the airport. It's me, Carl Malone, John Stockton, and Terry Porter. Every one of us played 15 years or more in the NBA. So, but I should have made the team. But what's really funny, John Thompson calls my coach about a week later. He says, Sonny, uh, I want to talk to you about Charles. He says – can I have him come to the office? So I come to the office. He says, Charles, I just want to tell you something. What Bobby did to you wasn't right and it wasn't fair. He said, you were the second best player here. You deserve to make the team, but Bobby was never going to let you make the team. He just didn't like you. He didn't give us a reason why. He just didn't like you. And I said, Coach, I really appreciate that John Thompson one of the greatest men ever. So he hangs up and my coach says, hmm, you were the second best player there. I said, yeah. He says, well, who's better than you? I said, there's this dude named Michael Jordan. I said, Coach, I've never seen anything like this in my life. I says, he's a little taller than me. He cannot run everybody. He cannot jump everybody. I said, I've never seen anything like this in my life. He said, I got to start watching that kid. <laughs> and – uh That was the first time that I – because it's probably – we started with 120 players, if I can remember correctly. And I made it out to the final cut. But I should have made the team. But Coach just didn't like me, period.
0: How did you feel about Bobby Knight and the rest of his career, the rest of your career? I,
1: I was probably too immature to let it go. And I did not like him at all. But you know, I probably, the best thing ever happened to me was Moses Malone. Because at this time, I'm still too big to play in the NBA. And the best thing happened to me, I happened to be standing in the same building as Moses. And I asked him one day, Moses, can I come up and talk to you tonight? He said, sure, young fella, come on up. I said, Moses, why am I not getting to play? And Moses. He said, Son, you're fat and you lazy. And I did like what any grown man would do. I went downstairs and cried. And he said, Hey, you you weigh over 290. You can't play in the NBA at that weight. He's got a lot of talent, but you can't sustain your work ethic. You can't play. And this dude helped me lose 50 pounds. He helped me lose 50 pounds to get to 250. And the rest is history. I, and every time I saw him, I thanked him. I called him Dad, and he was so close to me. One of the bittersweet days of my life when I gave a eulogy at his funeral—that's what he meant to me. And uh, he, that was the best thing that ever happened to me: getting drafted by
0: the Sixers and having Moses Malone mentor me. So not only was he the key piece In the puzzle for the Sixers winning a championship, mm-hmm. he was the key piece in the puzzle for perhaps
1: for my entire for life
0: Charles Barkley's career 100%. Because you know,
1: I've seen and you have too. You, you, you've you seen enough that's we are I can name 10, 15 guys who ate their way out of the NBA, probably more in the NFL because they're bigger dudes. We, I mean, when I'm an NFL friend, they talk about it like that dude if he could have controlled his weight, mm-hmm. but I've seen probably 10, 15 guys who ate their way out of the NBA.
0: Your life journey begins in Leeds, Alabama, a community of about 12,000 now. I don't know <laughs> it was what the population was when you were there. A couple thousand. A couple of thousand. Your father, Frank, leaves yeah. when uh, the year after you're born. Uh, he remarries, has four children. Your mom remarries and has two children. So in a sense, it's up to your grandfathers and your first coaches, Coach Honeycutt, mm-hmm. um, to be your father figures in the early part of your life? My
1: grandfathers have always been my father figures. Uh, My, Simon Barkley, Frank Mickens, Adolphus Edwards. My grandfathers have always, and my grandmother also. My grandmother's probably the most important person by far. Uh, Johnny Johnny May. Johnny May. My mom, the one, she had the worst taste in men. And she had a hard life, but She did the best she could under the circumstances. My grandmother was the most amazing woman. And, you know, I really appreciate growing up in a small town because you don't have all the stuff. Like, man, living here in Philadelphia during the summer, watching the news every day, my heart aches for these kids. I mean, to live in these environments where people just shooting each other every single day on your street has got to have a psychological effect upon you. Like, I, I, I mean, I'm, obviously it's probably been a couple, but I don't remember a lot of kids. I mean, we didn't have gangs, and I don't think we were committing a lot of crimes and things like that. But my heart aches when I watch the news in Philadelphia. I mean, I'm like, come on, man, these kids – it's got to have a, a bad psychological effect upon them.
0: You have said that in the black community it uh, that young people, kids in school, have to fight this culture of um, that it, it's not cool to do well. Yes. I, because it's not black enough. What, yeah. what does that mean?
1: Well, I think a lot of times – Young black kids don't realize, they make fun of each other. They do great in school or they talk correct and things like that. Man, you, you're you supposed to be smart. You're supposed to talk correct. The biggest problem we got in the black community is we got too many young black kids who think they're going to play pro sports. I was like, yo, man, you do know you got a better chance of being a lawyer, a doctor, an engineer, and things like that, or playing in the NBA or the NFL. But the only black people they see are famous athletes who make a lot of money. And we have got, we have got to do a much better job of letting our kids know, like, wait a minute, no, no, no. You can be a doctor, you can be a lawyer, you can be an engineer, you can be a teacher, you can be a fire policeman, a fireman, things like that. But sometimes when you spend time with these kids, and it's frustrating, especially when you're in a basketball environment, like, well, I'm gonna play in the NBA one day, I'm like, saying to myself, you're not gonna play in the NBA, no disrespect, your mom's like 5'2", and your dad's like (laughs) 5'5". But you can use sports as a vehicle to go to college for free, but I want them to think about being some way more important than a jock, but also, like I say, you just have a better opportunity. I say, what are the chances of being one of the 400 best players in the world? Pretty much zero. It's like, you know, you talk about the Powerball, (laughs) that's a billion dollars and things. Your odds are better to hit that than playing in the NBA if you want to be realistic
0: and being honest. Your mother said about her mother, and this is a quote, with her what comes up from her gut just about comes out of her mouth. So my question is, was Johnny May the, 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 the person who was responsible for this legendary candor yeah. of Charles Barkley? no,
1: no. No, because I didn't get that candor until I was telling you earlier about when I stopped trying to please everybody when I was talking to the press. But so it was weird. It's weird now. It wasn't weird then. So we didn't have any money. So my mom and grandmother sold alcohol on the weekend. From the house. From the house. And starting on Friday night to Sunday night, guys came over to drink and play cards. There was a fight every weekend because guys were trying to make extra money and then once they lost their money, they had to fight. And we sold alcohol shots to make extra money because my mom was a maid and my grandmother worked in a meat factory. And so it was a crazy... I didn't realize how crazy it was at the time because that's the life I had. I didn't realize to later. It was like, yo, man, you're... And my grandmother used to walk around with like a little six shooter,
0: cause there was a fight every weekend. You figure, well, every grandma, yeah, every grandma walks would walk around, around with a six with a gun. shooter, yeah.
1: And um, but it was, it, it was it, that was and she went, we went, she went fishing pretty much every day for extra meat. So, but that's how great of a person she was. She like whatever it takes to take care of my grandkids and my daughter. And so that's why I said she's the most important person in my life.
0: Basketball was everything to you when you were young. Is everything to me now. But when you were a, a, a young boy. Yeah. It was you walked around with the basketball. It was basketball yeah. all day, right? When you were when you were awake. Um, but you didn't really come into your own as a competitive basketball player until the last 2 years of of high school. Cuz I grew because I, I was too short.
1: So, because I was really saying to myself, to be honest with you, I got to get to college. And I would had zero chance of going to college unless I got a scholarship. So I did everything with a basketball, trying to get better, trying to get better, and I still wasn't any good. And then I grew. That's why, like, uh, when it, you go back and look at the, the, the things back in the day, I didn't get recruited by many schools I'm really just a big three in Alabama, Alabama, Auburn, UAB, because UAB. I grew so late. But dude, I want to say something because of basketball. I've had the most ex- ex- extraordinary life because of that stupid ball. I mean, it, it's pretty amazing. Like even the job I have today is only because I played in the NBA. But it's it's been ex- extraordinary. What I have done, accomplished, and been through. You know, a friend of mine, not a friend of mine, that's not true. When I, I got invited to the White House one time, and I was standing in the Oval Office beside President Obama, and I guess he got a, the, the president always had a photographer with him, and I didn't even know they had taken a picture. And I guess they had put it up somewhere, and I started getting phone calls like from my little hometown, a couple thousand people, like "Yo, man, just want you to know we're proud of you." I said, Dude, "What the hell are you talking about?" They're like, "Yo, man, you ain't seen the picture yet." I said, "What do you mean? What picture?" They're like, "Dude, somebody from this town is standing in the Oval Office beside President Obama," and I was like, "And I, I, I and I." reached the White House. I said, can I please have a copy of that picture? And they're like, of course. And they gave it to me. and it's very prominent. But to think about, I've been all over the world.
0: It's crazy. It's crazy. I've been all over the world. But you do realize, Charles, that there have been a whole lot of people who've played basketball who have not had the post-basketball career and life that you
1: have. Yes. And that's, I mean, be proud of that, yourself. Oh, I am so proud because – you know, but that, but it is because of basketball. I mean, I took the television portion and ran with it. But, man, you know, when you're working all the time, you don't have an opportunity to sit around and pat yourself on the back. But like, like I say, like now, I'm like, man, what an incredible
0: journey. You're beginning to yeah. reflect.
1: I'm beginning to. I mean, you've re- got a yeah. you've got a lot
0: a, a yeah. lot of territory yet to cover, but yeah. you're beginning hope, to reflect. Let's,
1: let's hope I'm not on the seventeenth or eighteenth yeah. hole. Let's yeah. hope I'm on the twelve.
0: Yeah, maybe. And or, let's or let's or hope 10. I make a birdie. Or too. ten. Or ten. Uh, let's make a birdie on ten. <laughs> you have had a couple of incidents in your life, as described by you, uh, that I've read about, that had a profound impact on your life. One. That you could not participate in your high school graduation with other people in your class. You were relegated to uh, the grandstand, yeah. uh, you know, uh, next door, fifty yards away or more, yeah. and you could only watch.
1: Yeah, that that was my first traumatic. Well, my my first traumatic experience. Part of my dad just lying all the time because he kept saying he' going to send me money and he never did, and. Um, I would see I would sit there and wait by the mailbox all the time and it never came. And we we repaired our relationship later in life, but I went through a really traumatic time just being angry at him and then then the high school thing happened. You know, Mr. G, I was so dist- okay, because my high school had never been to the state tournament. In my junior year, I got him there. And we got beat by a better team. They were better than us. And I said, I gotta get us there and I gotta win this thing. Because sports are a big deal in that little town. And I get us there my senior year and I get hurt. And we had been undefeated all year. And I was like, we gonna win this thing. And then I got hurt. And I was traumatized. I basically just quit school for like three weeks. I just laid in bed and just cried the whole time. And then I was able to catch up on all my classes except Spanish, which I'm still trying to figure out why I was taking Spanish in Alabama in in the (laughs) 80s. And I couldn't catch up. And they're like, Chuck, you can't graduate. I'm like, ugh. Even though you were the man. Yeah. Taught me a lesson, though. You're the man until you're not the man. But probably the worst thing about that, my dad flew in from California and screamed at me for like, I flew all the way to here, and your dumb ass, not even gonna graduate. And that was traumatic. But I remember sitting there watching, standing actually, the, the the graduation. And I cried the whole time. And I remember saying to myself, I need to get myself together. I need to grow up, handle my business, do what I'm supposed to do. And that was my first turning point in my life. Like, you know, man, these people, they're not your friend. They're your friend as long as you're doing good. The first time you do something, you're not supposed to do. So that was really a good time for me later. It wasn't that night. but I, I, I'm sorry, go ahead. It, but it taught me a lesson, like, People like you when you're doing good for them.
0: But when you're not doing good for them, it's like, yeah, okay, you're on your own. Another turning point, and I know you've talked about this probably countless times. Uh, 1991, a game against the Brooklyn Nets. Mm. Someone is hurling racial slurs at you the whole game. And you lost your cool and you you, uh, spit at this person. Uh, except most of what was in your mouth lands yeah. on the face of an eight year old girl. Yeah, that was the best thing that ever happened to me.
1: Now, at the, that night and right after that it wasn't. The worst thing that ever happened. I'm going to tell you something. You know, I was so angry. I was angry at my dad. I was angry at the kids who made fun of me for not graduating. I was angry at Miss Gomez for flunking me. So I, three years of my life, well, more than that, because I think that was probably my second, of, well, later than that, fifth or sixth year year in the NBA, I wasn't playing basketball to be great at it. I just wanted to stick it to everybody who had screwed me in my life. I said, see, what, see how I am now? And I remember being suspended. And I was sitting in my hotel room watching the game. And I was like, yo man, what the hell is wrong with you? Why are you playing basketball that you got a spit and you ain't enjoying your success? You got a great life. And I was just sitting there, I was crying, and I was like, damn,
0: man, this is this is your this is your moment. This is your turning point in your life. Turning points can be painful moments. And so it was with Charles Barkley, especially since millions of Americans were witness to what came to be known as the spitting incident. Remorse, humiliation, soul-searching, Barkley experienced them all. If you found this a compelling conversation, there is more in part two. We'll hear from Charles about race in America, why his friendship with Michael Jordan crashed and burned, and whether he plans to run for governor of Alabama yes, there is more to explore. Part one of my podcast with Charles Barkley is a production of Jim Gardner Productions and 6ABC. Matteo Iadonisi and I produced and edited this episode. I'm Jim Gardner.